If you're hearing this and you're going through hell, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, keep going because the best heroes go through hell and that is what makes them grow. That is what makes them become stronger. And you can keep going. You got this. You can do it. Keep going. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Jeff Barch, who, like me, now considers himself a former film and television editor, but is now visionary storyteller, communication strategist, and also the founder of Story Greenlight. You've got over 20 years of experience in the entertainment industry, as well as an online business. You've helped shape content for clients, including ABC, NBC, Universal, Disney, Apple, and that's just the very, very short list. Uh, and your commentary has also been featured in major publications, including, but not limited to, Time Magazine, USA Today, as well as the Associated Press, but I think the highest distinction of all is that I think you've been on my podcast at least three times now, maybe four. That's a very, <laughs> very short list of people that have been on the show that many times, including way back in the fitness and post days. So, Jeff, it is a tremendous pleasure to have you back once again. Awesome, man. Well, And I will say there's a very, very short list of people for whom I would show up for a podcast interview at the very end of my day instead of at the beginning of my day. But you know what? I'm now on the East Coast and y'all are back on LA time. So uh, when Zach Arnold calls up, we make it happen. It's funny because I had the exact same conversation with Debbie. And I was like, how do I have a podcast on a Friday afternoon? I can't imagine a worse dead zone of creativity <laughs> for me than 2.30 p.m. on a Friday. I'm like, oh, it's Jeff. Never mind. We'll keep it. So I, I had the exact <laughs> same reaction that you did to this. I'm like, how did this end up on my account? Oh, it's Jeff. Never mind. We'll do it. Nice. So, 
Uh, yeah, so we're on the same page. Uh, so there's a lot that I want to talk about today. My biggest fears, there's no way we're going to get through it in 90 minutes. But I want to talk more about the idea or the, the vision or the definition of creativity. I want to talk more about story. Um, I want to talk about this concept or idea of identifying as a polymath, which I've talked about a lot this year. Um, the idea of what it means to proverbially be very scatterbrained and all over the place. And why can't you just focus on one thing? I feel like you and I, very similarly on paper, have a lot of those similar challenges, which I now have learned over the course of the last year are less challenges and more superpowers, especially for the direction that we're going with our economy and with mm -hmm. creativity and with AI. But mm -hmm. I want to start really, really simply. And I would just, I would like to get your reaction to the following. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines creativity as, one, the ability to create, and two, the quality of being creative. Seems simple enough. How do you feel about that? I feel that's way, way oversimplified and not at all helpful. So I want to start here because a lot of what we're going to talk about <laughs> is going to be about the creative process, but the creative process of telling our own stories. And sure. you've got like a 10-minute mini TED Talk about the definition of creativity and why what's out there just isn't helpful. So just between the two of us, I want to start talking about defining what creativity really is. You know, when, any, when anyone ever talks about this, I always go back to the book written by Amanda Palmer. Uh, if you're not familiar with Amanda Palmer, she wrote a book called How I Learned to, How I Learned to Ask for Help, something to mm. that effect by, by Amanda Palmer. And uh, she is one of the first people, she was the first person ever to cross the seven-figure mark on, uh, on, on a public online fundraiser platform, uh, GoFundMe, or I believe it was mm -hmm. the first person to cross seven figures on a GoFundMe campaign. And in her book, she talks about creativity, saying this is like this, this the com comparison of the idea of Life experiences are like dots and we collect dots and then we put dots together in unique creative ways. And then we share those connections with others. She says, this is the essence of a creative human being, collecting the dots, connecting them and sharing them. And that's where my mind always goes when we talk about creativity. Yeah, and I'm I'm the same way. And just for some clarification, and we'll make sure to put a, a link in the show notes, the book is The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. And she also, also has a, a TED Talk about The Art of Asking as well. Uh, and it's funny, I had no idea you were going to bring this up, but my definition of creativity is virtually identical. Nice. And the simplest version in my favorite version of uh, explaining it is Steve Jobs' quote, creativity is just connecting things. Cool. And the reason that I bring that up and the reason that it's so helpful for me is that as a recovering perfectionist, as somebody that has a lot of imposter syndrome, I've always felt this need that my ideas must be original and creativity is the creation of a brand new idea. And I always felt like there was something wrong with my ability to be creative and string these pieces together because I was supposed to be coming up with something new. I was supposed to be creating. It's in the word, right? Right. It's when I realized that there's very little of anything left to actually be created. And creation comes in the act of connecting things. Mm -hmm. As soon as I started to understand that, I viewed creativity in a completely different way, especially our former lives as editors. 
because all we do all day long is take a bunch of random information and connect it all together in our own unique way to create stories and create emotions. So it's so funny that you're starting from essentially the exact same definition from a totally different angle. Yeah. Yeah. The art of asking has some incredibly profound ideas about creativity and how to, what is art and how do you make your art and how do you put it out into the world and some pretty countercultural ideas that she has in there. Uh, highly recommend it. Yeah. So the, the reason that I'm starting the conversation about creativity is we're not necessarily going to talk about the creative process, whether it's as an editor, whether it's as an entrepreneur or a speaker, as a coach. We could probably do 90 minute interviews on each of those alone and do an entire series. The thing that I'm the most interested in is learning how to combine creativity with the ability to understand story structure and the hero's journey, which you talk a lot about in the Story Greenlight program, mm -hmm. and taking those two things and applying it to your own narrative and your own story. Because I have found, especially over the last year or so, myself included, there's been a pretty massive collective identity crisis about who the hell are we? especially those in creative fields thinking, wait a second, is a plugin going to replace everything that I do for a living? Is AI right. going to take it all? And the right. more we learn how to understand what are our dots. So using kind of your, uh, your uh, example from Amanda, what are all the dots that I have and how do I reconnect them to tell a different story and narrative so that I can focus on the human intelligence and not worry so much about the artificial intelligence? So yeah. I'd like to learn that there are a lot of dots in your story and we're going to do our best to connect all the most relevant ones. But I actually want to go back to the beginning of the story and this idea of most of your life, you actually identified as a pianist and a musician. So talk yes. to me a little bit about going back to the beginning where you really learned about how to find the soul of something. So well, here's, here's the thing. When most people look me up, online, they say, oh, well, Jeff, you're a Hollywood guy. You did all this stuff for all these TV networks. So you're, you know, you're Jeff, the Hollywood guy. And that's where you learned all about storytelling and communication and all that stuff. And you wouldn't be wrong. But the thing is, it's not about that in terms of that doing. The power behind that started, it literally started 40 years ago when I was four years old. I'm currently 44 at this recording. And I started taking classical piano training. And I actually got really good at playing classical music. And if people are familiar with classical music, you probably know Bach and Mozart. I loved both of those, playing them on the piano, because you could be super super technical. It was super technical and clean. You didn't have to worry about all that muddy, emotional, messy stuff and interpretation. I mean, you could just play the notes on the page and you're good. And everyone says, Jeff, you're amazing. So when you know, I got most of my reps in doing that as Jeff, the piano guy on Sunday mornings in church, I just got in rep after rep after rep. And there was one day, an older musician at the church kind of took me aside and she said, you know, Jeff, it's, it's all well and good to uh, play the notes on the page. But when you get older, you have to learn to play from your soul. And at the time, I was 10 or 11 years old. And I thought, you know, everyone's saying that I'm doing amazing. And I think this lady is full of it. So <laughs> I, just, I just ignored her in my polite elementary school way. And I just kept doing my thing. Okay, old lady, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the, the thing that happened, though, 
was as I learned to take the notes off the page and actually bring them to life over the next years, as I grew in my musicianship, people's responses started to change. And there were people who would say, instead of, oh, Jeff, you're such an amazing pianist, people would say, oh, Jeff, that, that song that you picked to play today was exactly the message that I needed to hear. So th thank you so much for picking that. Thank you for that song. And every once in a while, there would be someone who said, Jeff, the way with what's happening in my life, the way I've been feeling for me to be here this morning and to hear you play what you did, it brought me into an encounter with God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so eventually I got it into my head that this is way bigger than just me. And there is something far more powerful than me just pressing keys on a piano. And what I learned since then is that the thing that brought that music to life, the ideas behind that are the exact same ideas that helped me captivate audiences in high school when I was creating video projects, when I was doing video production, back when it was really still hard to do that. And cell phones literally had not been invented yet. Yeah, and, God, we're old. <laughs> and getting into college and doing radio and then getting out to film school and 20 years in Hollywood. Everything is connected by the same narrative forces. And when we understand the narrative forces at work, we come to find that these forces literally control every human interaction between one human being and another. And when we understand that, we have incredible power to build human connections in any field and certainly to change our own stories. Yeah, a couple ideas that came to mind as you were saying all of this, because we're so on the same page, and I'm glad that we started here. Um, there's something that you and I talk about all the time. We use slightly different words, but it's exactly this concept. And it's either the notes underneath the notes or the story underneath the story. The thing and under the thing. Yeah, the, the, exactly. You, talk, you call it the thing underneath the thing. I want to get to that in a second, but sure. I have what a little bit of a tangent. Just It's just my own personal curiosity. Um, right now, as far as your level of competency or uh, expertise in being able to play classical music, that's what I that's the skill that I want to be able to download via the matrix. I've told many people that in another life on my to do list, my bucket list, I want to be a concert level pianist. I want to play emperors, uh, Beethoven's uh, fifth emperor piano concerto, like mm -hmm. on my bucket list. That's a lot of work. That's not an easy piece to play. Right. But one of the things that I found interesting in I've dabbled here and there and I'll spend a year where I'm obsessed with piano, then I drop it for years, then I have kids and, you know, life gets in the way. But what I found personally is that from a technical perspective, I kind of suck. And I also really struggle with reading music, but I was really good at being able to do Beethoven because Beethoven requires so much emotional interpretation. And mm. I struggled a lot more with Bach and Mozart because I didn't feel them as much. And I'm curious when you made the transition from Bach and Mozart and people saying, oh, you're such a great piano player to you made me feel something. Was it still the Bach and the Mozart or was it also choices of more emotional pieces that needed more interpretation? It was me learning to become more of a human being instead mm. of a dorky kid who preferred books over people. Now, that didn't really happen 
<laughs> that didn't truly begin to happen until I was in college. But there were glimmers of it in terms of my own personal development in high school and knowing how to shape, how to shape colors and musical colors and phrases and dynamics and wh where are you starting? Where are you going to? Where's the midpoint in all this? And what, you know, section A makes a statement. Section B gives a counterstatement. And then you're back to section A, but it's different. And how are you going to make this different? Yeah, so all that kind of stuff. It's you, I, I would put it this way. Anything that we attempt in a creative world will always have its fundamentals. And it's like having your tools in your toolbox. You have to know what the fundamental skills are. But eventually you get to a point where you have to make those tools disappear. I was in a, uh, I was in a panel at one point at Warner Brothers and the re-recording mixer one of the re-recording mixers on staff at Warner's was giving, uh, was talking and he said, you know, and, and this guy, every day, he sits in this mixing stage, mixing on a sound console that literally stretches from one side of the mixing stage to the other, uh, 200 channels. It's just this monstrous thing. And he says, the bigger and more impressive the tools, the more important it is to know them, to know them like the back of your hand so you can make them disappear. So you can focus on that higher level element that really brings the message and the craft and the art to life. And this applies to anything. So back to your question, I mean, to be frank, it's difficult to make people feel things if you're playing a Bach invention. But man, if you play, if you, if you pull out Claire de Lune by Debussy, and you really just let the time flow. You can make, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. I mean, that's, it's a whole other discussion, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it is really easy. It's, it's far easier to, to bring people along for a journey in that kind of a context. Yeah, and I, I actually I want to go even deeper into this idea of the the thing underneath the thing, and how mm -hmm. you said this applies to everything. Um, we're gonna get into like what basically you and I are gonna compare who's the bigger polymath because <sighs> on paper both of us make absolutely no sense whatsoever. We are so scatterbrained and all over the place. And you're working on Ninja Warrior, I'm working on Cobra Kai, but you've got a coaching program, and I've got a coaching program, and you've got a podcast, and I've got a podcast. I don't know how I turned into Oprah just now. Um, but what I what I what I, I want that coaching program, by the way. So just oh, you did. Yeah. Okay, so we can cross that off of your list. But you're always exactly. you're always looking for what is that next thing. But it always comes back to the same thing, which is the thing underneath the thing, right? So I know that it's not either of our primary areas of focus anymore. But I do want to talk about how both of us really learned how to hone and refine storytelling and get as much emotion as possible out of something, being storytellers and editors. Because again, going to this analogy of this applies to everything, I don't know Avid Media Composer that well. I know what I need to know to make the tool disappear so I can create emotions. So whenever mm -hmm. people ask me on a panel, how do you describe what you do? I say, I play Tetris with people's emotions all day long. I get to move around a bunch of colored blocks and it makes people feel things. I know how to do that in Avid. 
Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I'm pretty kind of sort of useless and I make sure that I have really good assistant editors, right? <laughs> and to, to to use the example of uh, American Ninja Warrior, for example, and by the way, for the audience, if you don't know, you and I don't actually know each other because of American Ninja Warrior. We actually knew each other way before that. It just happens mm-hmm. to be a coincidence that you're editing on the show that I decided I was going to be on. So, but that's actually not how we connected. Yeah. But I can I can say unequivocally because I've seen almost every episode. There is such a difference between American Ninja Warrior and the stories that it's telling versus other shows that are similar to it. And the interesting thing is you've worked on some of those other shows, whether it was the Spartan shows, Ultimate Beastmaster, whatever it might be, The Floor is mm-hmm. Lava. I I don't know how many of them you worked on, but there's something different about the storytelling and the emotion. And that to me is an example that's very overt of what you do, bringing out the emotion and finding the thing underneath the thing, rather than I can competently cut together uh, featured packages for the athletes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think I have the coolest job on the entire show because I get to focus exclusively on telling the stories of these athletes before they set foot on the course. And uh, I mean, it's literally, and and it's literally to the point, I mean, we, all of us at the show, and and I've been there for, I think, 10 seasons. Yeah, 10 seasons of 10, it's almost 10 years at this point. And all of us there know the show like the back of our hands. We all have our areas of specialty. And so when the producers say, okay, we definitely need this one. We need this one to land emotionally. We need people to feel things. And they say, give it to Jeff. I'm one of the, the you know, that, I'm the, that's, that's the stuff that I focus on the most. And so the cool thing about this is, I think one of the reasons that the show is so inherently different is because the entire show itself is a metaphor for life because you have physical obstacles and you have athletes seeking to get across physical obstacles. And you hear over and over the hosts say, as we always say on the show, uh, so many of these athletes, the obstacles that they've overcome in their own lives are nothing compared to the obstacles on this. Well, the obstacles on this course are nothing compared to the obstacles they've overcome in their own lives. And that, is that is incredibly that's incredibly true because the reason people care so much about this is when you see a story about someone who has overcome obstacles in their life and then they go and they overcome physical obstacles every time they finish a physical obstacle it becomes a message to the viewer saying they can overcome it you Whatever you're facing in your life, you can overcome it too. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And we just pump out that message over and over and over for years and years to millions of people. And it is so cool. It is so cool and such an honor and it's such a privilege to be part of that. It's the second coolest job, by the way. The coolest is actually getting to run the course. That Ah, part's part's cooler. Um, I have not run the whole course, but it's funny that uh, that you bring up kind of this idea of it being a metaphor for life and this idea of I can do it, anybody can do it. Even though this clip never aired, you may or may not have seen it, but I have a clip of this from the, the raw footage. It's basically me in the water after I fe- fell saying right to the camera, trust me, if I can be a ninja, 
anybody can be a ninja. And that's why I've done it for so many years, right? So for me, awesome. the, the, the ultimate goal, the one piece of the puzzle that I haven't gotten yet is the featured story. That's what this has always been about. It hasn't been about, oh, I want to get on the course or I want to get on TV. I can give two shits about any of that. The vision <laughs> is when I can cross the box off and move on with my life, the featured story, knowing it's inspiring other people, because that's the story underneath the story, right? It's not that, hey, I'm an athlete. Um, and I've already I've I've been told by multiple producers on the show now where they've reached out and said, dude, like we get like 90,000 of these a year. Like your casting tape is arable. Like it's it's the best casting piece we have. So I know I've got the story and yeah. I had one of the producers, I won't say his name, but he literally came up to me on set and he's like, dude, you have to do well because we all want this to air. And I'm like, oh, no pressure. Thanks. <laughs> right. So I've actually I've got producers on the show that are now literally rooting for me but I actually have to do well enough that it makes it on the show. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's that, really what you have either that, or you have to get past the first obstacle and be 80. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, that's only the thing. or the, yeah, there has to be something very kishy or unique, or you right. literally have to make a fool of yourself. Like no. I have a, I have a friend of mine that's a, an, an OCR legend, like Spartan racer. It is the 24 hour races. He's mm -hmm. known as like one of the world's toughest mutters. He slipped on the first step of the first obstacle and fell in the water his first year. That oh. aired, right? I oh. mean, this guy's like, he's as badass as they come. First step, like literally one step in, got wet. And I'm like, I can't even imagine. And that aired, but that is not the way that I want to air. But I've actually gotten <laughs> to know him because he and I were shooting on set the same day that we both fell on the first obstacle. And then we shot together the same day, our second season. He made it through the first obstacle and I didn't. Um, but the the point is, that for me, it is really about that story underneath the story. Not look, I'm an athlete. Uh, it's the the ability to show that anybody can overcome these obstacles in real life. And these are just a metaphor. Yeah. So that to me is an example of how there's a difference between um, I know the story and I'm creative and I can put the pieces together and I'm proficient versus there's a much, much deeper level to you and your ability to bring that emotion out that has nothing to do with your technical or your hard skills. And it's based on advice that you got from some random old lady when you were playing piano in a church, right? Well, that's, you, you know what? It's, it, it's, it's interesting to think about that because that's, that's an example of reverse engineering strategic storytelling because when you look at the moments the big moments in my life that was not one of them that moment was incredibly forgettable i mean how many things can i remember from when i was 10 or 11 in that specific with that kind of specificity i mean it's kind of nuts that i remember that at all but for some reason it just stuck in my head and the reason that it ends up working is because when you know when when you're wanting to tell a story for a specific reason in a specific context to a specific audience that's the kind of stuff that you have to know first this you, you know you have to reverse engineer all that stuff because if you start saying if you start from the beginning and saying I want to inspire people with stories and help them believe in themselves. What stories am I going to tell about for my life? You will drown in your source material and you will instantly get frustrated and, and you'll, it's not going to work. So, so to that point, um, that moment is not so much, I wouldn't say that's so much of a, uh, that's, I mean, it, it, it was the beginning of the journey. 
It's but a dot, right? It, it's it one of the dots. Dot. It, it is a dot. So you know what? Can, can we go a little nerdy here for a second? Let's let's get really nerdy. Okay. So film school. No, actually not film school. Let's just talk about what, what people think about stories in general. So most people, they hear the idea of a story and they think, oh, well, I tell stories all the time. You, you might even say, I'm a professional storyteller. So I've got this. I'm good. But here's the thing. There is a difference between tactical storytelling and strategic storytelling. And most of us, when we think of the idea of telling a story, we think of the tactical boots on the ground, delivering an anecdote. And, you know, over the water cooler, talking with people about what we did over the weekend or whatever. Now, we all know that that can be done poorly because we see it done poorly all the time. We also know, because anyone who's watched a TED Talk or anything like that knows that a, a tactical story can be incredibly powerful when it's done well. And when it's done well, it delivers such an effect that it appears to be magical. So number one, it is not magical. It is based on skills and skills can be learned. Now, the thing is though, when you talk about storytelling, you need to know that the power of all this comes from the big picture strategic view. So in order to unlock that big picture strategic view of storytelling, you have to zero in and be clear on what a story definition actually is. And the best definition I've ever heard of a story comes from Donald Miller of Building a Story Brand. In one of his earlier books, when he was still writing fiction, he wrote the line, a story is where a character wants something and overcomes obstacles to get it. And I added, and experiences transformation as a result. So when you take that idea, a story is where a character wants something, overcomes obstacles to get it, and experiences transformation as a result. Those elements right there provide the foundation for any Story Scheme, Hero's Journey, Story Brand 7, Save the Cat, uh, Three-Act Structure, all that stuff, all the way up to, uh, I, I, I think, uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia was actually built within the context of a 20-scene sequence. Just, just forget three-act structure. He was thinking about 20 scenes, all that stuff. It can go out that broad, but it can also be shrunk down to just those three words of character. Well, more than just three words, but character, desire, obstacles, transformation. And if you have to do just one word, it's all about that last word, change, show change. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here 
happier than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. For anybody um, that wants to dig way, way deeper into this shameless self-promotion, I will send you a link in the show notes to the episode that I did with Chris Vogler talking all about the writer's journey, which is basically the colloquial explanation of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which I personally find challenging to get through, whereas the writer's journey is just bullet points here. Let me help translate all this into just kind of regular speak. Amazing conversation with Chris Vogler. Now, random insider baseball. I used to share executive assistants with Donald Miller. Oh, nice. That's actually how I discovered Donald Miller. And he has been a huge influence in a lot of the things I'm doing with the coaching program and the educational materials and building the business and building my team. The first time that I met with my executive assistant to interview him, his Zoom name said Donald Miller. I said, well, I'm sorry, your name is Donald? I thought your, I thought your name was uh, Carrie. He's like, oh, no, no, that's my boss. I never heard of him. I looked up Donald Miller afterwards. I'm like, oh, you got to be shitting me. That's nice. Really? And that's then awesome. I, I've, I've totally uh, jumped into in the, his world and learned so much from him. So that's, you know, random insider baseball. But I want to get back to, to story because to me, story is such, such an important concept here, especially not in the context of being creative or having creative uh, jobs or even building a creative career. It's understanding how to construct your own story. And I'm yes. glad you brought, right? And that, that's really why we're here is that you're at a really unique intersection for me, which is both somebody that understands story and understands storytelling, but you also have a really complicated personal story and a personal narrative. And to have somebody that can just talk about story, that's one thing. To have somebody that's a polymath with a really complicated narrative, that's another thing. To have somebody that can do both, that's a very unique place to live. And I feel like you live at the epicenter of both of those things. So well, I, oh, go ahead. Well, I will say, I will say one of the things that Donald Miller has done so incredibly well is take the ideas of story that can really get unwieldy and have 87 plot points and get really complicated and just, and to shrink them down, to distill them into things that work for business. Mm -hmm. And that has been, that's been one of the things that I've really focused on, on that, on, on, on within that context. And the thing that I've discovered to your point about polymath is that when you understand that definition of story is where a character wants something, overcomes obstacles to get it, uh, you know, overcomes obstacles to get it and experiences transformation as a result. That literally becomes the blueprint for every interaction between every human being in any context ever. 
And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. It is literally that far-reaching. It is how any communication takes place. It is how and it is how you can pitch a screenplay, you can pitch a proposal. It's how you can write an email. It's how you can write a headline. It's how you can deliver a speech. It's how you can have a one-on-one conversation with people. And you may not even deliver a tactical story at all. But those narrative forces of character, desire, obstacles, and transformation govern everything. It is gravity. And it affects everything, whether we know it or not. Yeah, and I, I would... Uh, I'm. I always am cautious of hyperbole and I don't believe that this is hyperbole. I believe exactly what you're saying. And I felt the same thing that the more you learn about the structure of story and our need for story, like just as far as human existence is concerned. And again, shameless self-promotion number two, I have a full conversation about the science of storytelling and why we're wired for stories with author Will Storr. So we're going to put that in the show notes as well. But I, wa- I want to get back to even digging a little bit deeper into understanding strategic storytelling versus tactical storytelling. Sure. So the tactical one, that makes a whole lot of sense. So I've got the three-act structure. I've got the five-act structure. I've got the, the you know, 12 acts in that wheel of the hero's journey. Here are the tactics. Here are the pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So the tactical part, I think that makes a lot of sense. Give me a little bit more idea of what you specifically mean by strategic storytelling. And give if, if you need to, whether it's your own or other story examples, give me examples. So I'm like, oh, okay, now I totally get what strategic storytelling means and how it's so different from tactical storytelling. There is a concept called narrative transportation. If you look up the phrase narrative transportation on Google, you will see recent research within the last 10 years about what happens to the brains of people when they're in fMRI machines. And I don't want to go too far down this because I'm sure you've already gone over this on on other conversations. But the point is, this narrative transportation engages and pulls people in. When people hear a story when it's told well, when it engages people's attention, it sucks people in and says, what was a time when I've experienced something similar? And when that happens, there are bonds that are built between the two people. So within the strategic storytelling concept, the power of any tactical story comes from the desires and the emotions of the audience. So when we think about in the strategic context, it's all about that story definition, but from the audience's perspective, who are they? What do they want? What's getting in their way? And how can we help them get it? Now, this is something that any screenwriter has to, has to think about. Any creative in the television and film industry has to think about, okay, who's the audience? What do they expect? And all that kind of a thing. But you go to business, it's equally, it's, it, it, it applies even more so. Any kind of marketing that you have to do is all about who are you talking to? The more specific you know who you're talking to, what they want, what's getting in their way. When you say, I know exactly who you are. I know what you want. And I know all the things that are keeping you from getting it. Here is a product or a service that will help you get what they want. And they say, Take my money. 
This is how business happens. It's the exact same thing. And when you're, you know, people in Hollywood like to think that they're all that. Hollywood is very good at thinking that Hollywood it's is all that. It's the epicenter of the universe of what? I am all that. <laughs> Ask me how I really feel. Sorry. You, you, you got away. You're in Cleveland now. You escaped. I'm still here. <laughs> so there's that. The thing is, though, everything that governs storytelling in Hollywood is the exact same thing that governs communication anywhere else. I'm going to keep harping on that like a broken record because it is all the same thing. So the reason that an audience gets an emotional connection to a tactical story is because it is delivered with their character, their desires, their obstacles in mind. And when they get what they want, either emotionally or psychologically, that's when they pay attention or when they say yes, or they keep listening or they click the buy button. I love that. There are so many things in here that I want to dig into. The first of which is that if there's a portion of the audience that's thinking right now, oh, I, I just do creative work and I'm not a business. So th this no longer applies to me. Mm -hmm. You are a business of one. Whoever's listening, whoever's watching, you are a business of one. You are a salesperson. You do have a product yourself and you provide a service. So for anybody that's thinking, oh, well, this is for business people in today's day and age where the career ladder no longer exists, you mm -hmm. at the minimum are a business of one and you have to understand storytelling skills. And what I talk about in my coaching program, when I'm specifically coaching people on career pivots, career transitions, or even just looking for the next gig or trying to level up the kind of work that they're already doing. I help them realize that you as a creative, you're a storyteller in some way, shape, or form. As an editor, you're taking all the pieces and putting them together. As a cinematographer, the way you shape your frame and your lighting choices and your lens choices, that's telling a story and creating an emotion. Still photographers, painters, I could go on and on and on. We're all storytellers with our own mediums, but we don't realize that we have those skills. And when the time comes to tell our own story, God, we suck at telling our own story. And we think it's all about sales. Here's what I'm good at. And here are my qualifications. And I look at the skills and the qualifications list on resumes. And I want to shoot myself in the face because none of it is interesting. Excellent yeah. at communicating, de deadline driven. I'm like, nobody cares. Sure, there's a certain level of proficiency that's necessary to break in. But once you get to a certain point where you're established, your competition has nothing to do with those hard skills. It goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. What are the human qualities that you have that separate you from others? How well do you understand the note underneath the note or the thing underneath the thing? And how can you take all of the various dots in your life that seem random to construct that story such that you can tell somebody, I understand your problems and I can solve them. That to yes. me, as soon as that clicked in place, everything made so much more sense. But it took a long time for that to click into place. I'm trying to shorten people's learning curves because very similar to me, you also have a career that on paper is very circuitous and all over the place. And if we were to look at two divergent paths, so maybe not even divergent, but if there were two separate paths, there's the path of, I'm gonna work as an editor and a craftsperson in Hollywood, and then there's, I'm going to become a, a business person and an entrepreneur. And they're mm -hmm. both kind of windy, but the business entrepreneur one is really windy, just like mine is, oh, dude. right? 
And I, so I, so what, what I want to start doing is I just want to start sharing all of the various dots. We're going to start connecting them. Let's just start talking about some of the dots that are on your path because outside of I've edited for 10 years or significantly more, but 10 years on Ninja Warrior. If we look at the entrepreneur business side of things, you have so many dots. I don't even know where to start. So let's just start sharing some of the different experiences you've had because I want to help people understand how do I take all these random experiences and all these random skills and abilities and actually construct a narrative around myself. But for now, I just want to talk about the dots. Sure. So within 20 years in LA, about five years in, I had thought that, you know, when I got to, you know, when I got my first assistant editing gig, I was thrilled. I wasn't even getting paid, but I was happy as a clam. I could pay my rent with other stuff and I was good. Then I got my first assist gig, got my first full editing gig. And I thought, hey, if I, you know, I'm, I'm good. This is cool. Oh, but wait, maybe if I get on a network show, then that'll be better. And I know I've heard you tell versions of this. I mean, you go to the next bigger and better thing, big next bigger and better thing. And you're at, then, and you get there and you're going, oh, this is the same thing as it's always been. So at some point, about five or six years, I realized that unless I wanted to become a producer and, or an executive or something, or completely change what I was doing and have no life and hate my life, I was at an income ceiling. And so I wanted to learn how to bring in extra streams of income. God have mercy if you go to the internet and type in Extra streams of income. You, you <laughs> don't do that. Oh, and it gets so, even better if you put in passive income. That can oh, be yes. a whole show in and of itself. So what I ended up doing was I ran into a I ran into a group that said, okay, well, you, you just need to get really good at marketing. And I said, well, I want to learn about business. No, you just need to learn about marketing because if you're good at marketing, that fixes everything. Well, at that point, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I started hanging out with this group for quite a while. I started a business. Uh, believe it or not, do, um, are, you familiar, are you familiar with Misha Tenenbaum's business edit, uh, edit mentor? Oh, yes. Uh, Misha and I are actually very close friends. We've worked together a lot, and I've actually had him on the podcast a couple of times. You've, you've had more appearances than he had, but I'm very familiar with Misha. Yes. So I actually started Edit Mentor. Did you know that? I did not know that. I actually started Edit Mentor in 2008 mm. or in 2007. And I originally started that as I wanted to give an online, have an online platform for giving unedited packages of video and film footage as learning tools. Oh, you're talking about Edit Stock, edit. not Edit Mentor, because they're two oh, different. Oh, you oh, mean oh, Edit sorry. Stock? Ed, yep. Edit Stock. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Edit Mentor. Mm -hmm. that, is what, that is what I started. I worked my tail off and I knew nothing about business. I thought that just because I was trying this, because I knew how to edit videos that I could put videos up on the internet and people would automatically buy. That is not how it worked. That business tanked. It didn't, and it just languished there. Misha bought the, bought the domain from me. And no kidding. Has, I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, and, and he's doing great things with it. I'm so stoked. So I went from the idea of, okay, well, that didn't work. So what can I do? How can I bring value into the world? So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can teach people who want to do what I do. 
So I started up my next business called The Power Edit. And uh, one of the things that I did was I, I started doing group coaching. And I did group coaching for young editors and assistant editors who wanted to do what I was doing, sitting in the editor chair full-time for broadcast TV. And that worked. That actually worked. I was able to sell, I was able to sell some, you know, some, some rounds of that. The challenge with that was that uh, there, there was a small target audience for that, the small pool to swim yeah, in. I can, I, I can second that. Ask me how I know that's a small pool, but continue. <laughs> so then I said, okay, well, let's broaden the market and let's talk about creative editing to hobbyists and amateur editors. And therein lay the beginning of a great wasteland of years of me banging my head against the wall where I'm trying to offer something to the world to people who don't have a problem and don't have the money to pay to get it fixed. <laughs> If anyone thinks that sounds like a profitable business, it is not. <laughs> so that I have spent in business, you know, and, and all the while I was keep I was keeping on with my uh, with, with my regular broadcast editing stuff, and I was working on this as, as Plan B. And all this time, man, if I had just known, dude, you have to provide value. To people who need it. You have to provide value to people who have a problem that your value fixes. And that, and if you want to make money from it, you need to go to people who have the money to pay you to fix their problem. That is a lot of banging my head against the wall in those couple sentences. I know, and, and I know you're feeling that. Oh yeah, no, I've I've felt that many many times, and it's a lesson that I've learned myself. And I I know the frustration of having an audience that doesn't have the money to solve a problem they don't have. That yes. was essentially what Fitness and Post was. There mm. were a few people. You want to talk about a small audience? You thought working with young editors that wanted to become uh, more successful editors as a small audience? Try the intersection of editors that are interested in fitness. That's as small a niche as it gets, right? But ultimately, there were a lot of people that I was trying to sell a solution to that didn't see it as a problem. There were a very small group of people that had it as a burning pain. Like, I need somebody to solve this problem. So that's yeah. how I started to build my very small core audience, but realized very quickly that I'm not going to be able to build an entire enterprise on helping editors or assistant editors bring better health and fitness into their world. But what mm -hmm. I learned was that if you remove the word editor, there are millions of people that are working sedentary lifestyles that are unhealthy that depend on their creativity for their livelihood, right? So mm -hmm. all of the problems that I solve, now I just need to find people in different areas that are solving similar problems. But to me, what's so important here is understanding that you're there to solve someone else's problem. That's it. It's, your, it's not your journey. They're on the journey. They're the hero and you are the guide. And when it comes to resumes, websites, job interview prep, all the stuff that I do with my students, it's, they always think that it's about them. And I always mm -hmm. ask the really dumb question. They bring up their resume. They bring up an outreach email, whatever it might be. So who's this about? Well, what do you mean? It's my resume. But who's it about? Well, it's about me. Ah, and there's your problem, right? It's not. <laughs> None of it is about you. It's always about the person that has a problem and they're looking for you to be the solution. Yeah. And that's where understanding what are all the various dots that I have in my life 
where do they provide the solution to somebody else's problem and connecting all those dots? So I'm curious, I want to go a little bit deeper into this because I didn't realize, and I'm assuming that when you were talking about this vast chasm of trying to bring creativity and storytelling to an audience that didn't have a problem, was mm-hmm. that the beginning of Story Greenlight? That Story Greenlight started up in that in that stage. Uh, mm-hmm. Story Greenlight started in 2017. That's when I started the YouTube channel. And at that point, my thought was, um, if people are familiar with a gentleman by the name of Peter McKinnon, he has, uh, you know, he is a YouTube creator that's all about photography and uh, cinematic looking photography. And I saw the stuff that he was doing. I thought, oh, well, I could do that. I could be the Peter McKinnon for video editing. How, how hard could it be? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> So that's when I started learning about YouTube and how hard it actually is. Because mm-hmm. man, it's one thing to be able to cut stuff that that professionals shoot for professional context. It is another thing entirely to write and shoot and and be on camera and then perf- and then cut your own stuff. Oh my word, it's a whole different world. But it was another dot, and. What I, you know, in that context, I was still trying to say, hey, here's how to do, you know, I'm, I'm Jeff, the Hollywood guy. I can, you know, I can help you get super cool editing stuff. And people's, people are saying, well, yeah, that's, that, that's, I'll, I'll watch some of your videos, but I'm just figuring stuff out by myself. I mean, I got YouTube to all the tutorials and it didn't really, it didn't really start changing into something that could move the needle in a business sense until, I started up an agency where I said, okay, if we go to YouTube creators who are already at 100 or 200, 300,000 subscribers, that takes a lot of work to put out the content and to have all the things that go around that. They need a production schedule. They, have, they need project management. They need all this stuff. So I set up an agency and I started bringing on a team. Uh, I had my first client. Uh, and it was actually his idea, our, the, our first client, it was his idea. And he had half a million subscribers himself. And we were going to come in and help be producers for his channel. And long story short with that, all the clients either fired us or they left because we were not delivering enough value. And it took all the clients leaving or saying, you suck <laughs> to, for me to figure that out. And so I, I went back and, and, uh, I, the, and at that point, most of the team had decided to move on. So the team left me too. And uh, except for my right-hand uh, producer gal, and she was, with, uh, she was with me for quite, quite a number of years. And uh, I had to figure out what's, what is going to happen next. What is the value that I bring given my background for people who can actually, that will actually benefit people financially to have this problem solved. And it came to the point where I finally figured out, okay, if the function of storytelling is to build trust, is to build connection between people, who are the people in business who need to develop trust? Okay, then we started thinking, okay, that's where that that's where the wheels started turning. I said, okay, so what what if I'm saying we we help we help uh, professional advisors, financial advisors, uh, estate attorneys? 
mean, because you're not just going to go to any accountant or, or a financial advisor or someone like that and say, here's all my life plans, here's my estate, and, and, and know nothing about them. And just and unless you actually trust that they're good at what they do and you feel some sort of connection. And that was the journey that really started taking Story Greenlight to the place where we are currently at a place where we help business experts and leaders communicate powerfully in a public way, uh, focusing specifically on podcasts, business podcasts. And that is something that is incredibly powerful because with AI taking over the world, businesses and, well, and also business marketing known as B2B marketing, business to business marketing is also known as boring to boring marketing. And it is <laughs> overrun with AI generated garbage and people just don't care. And so when sales leaders say, and when C-suite people say, how can we actually stand out and have people care about what we're doing? And say, yes, we believe you. We connect with you. We like you. Instead of all this AI-generated garbage, they say, okay, let's build a human connection. And that's where long-format conversations, like the one we're having right now, are awesome for that. And if you can teach people within the business context to do that, you, if you can teach them to think about communication and storytelling, just today, I was able to send an email to a client, to a CC, to a whole bunch of people, including the CEO of the company saying, one conversation by this guy based on tools that we've been working on together, one conversation saved a client from leaving the company and saved you almost $200,000 in future revenue. Now that is something completely different than saying, let me teach creative editing to YouTube creators. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day, and that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour, but if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. I didn't even know most of this story. This is fascinating for me right now. 
Um, I, I knew that there was a pivot in there. Yeah. I, I knew that there was some pivoting in there, but I didn't realize how far you had expanded and changed the positioning of what you were doing with story green light. So I could easily turn this into a two or three hour conversation, just like talking shop. I'm not going to go there for now, but what I want to do is I want to give you an example of kind of one of the core ideas that I use in my, uh, my career design program. And I want you to apply these lessons to the journey that you just talked about. Because I think that the the value going forwards for pretty much everybody in the face of artificial intelligence, and I will not turn this into a TED talk, but the the world as we know it, as far as learning specialization and going through the entire assembly line of education, you learn this one skill and craft, you become an expert in this craft, you do it for 30, 40 years, and then you retire, those days are over. Um, I think the value is it's in finding the intersection of all of the unique skills and abilities and experience that we have to be become a generalist. I firmly believe that when I talked about it almost a year ago, people thought I was a heretic. Now they're like, oh, he might not be wrong. Maybe I need to start paying attention. I firmly believe this. And I'm going to give you an example of an exercise. And I want you to take the same basic concept to explain how all of the different dots you've connected have now led you to where you are now. And it might lead you somewhere else in the future. Here's the simplest version. As a Hollywood film and television editor, I have a high level of expertise. I am not the best in the world by any means. I am not doing Maverick and, you know, Rogue, Mission Impossible. And I'm, so I'm not Eddie Hamilton, right? I'm not Billy Goldenberg winning Oscars. I'm not even winning Emmys. But I have a pretty high level of expertise in doing Hollywood film and television and editing, having worked on shows like Cobra Kai and Empire and Burn Notice, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. This is another area where you are a very unique person to have on this show because you know my entire American Ninja Warrior. You've even seen some footage that the rest of the world hasn't. As an American Ninja Warrior, I suck. I am not a very good American Ninja Warrior, and I train with literally the best in the sport. I am not a very good American Ninja Warrior. I'm going to stop you right there. Just going to point out the fact that there are about maybe 50, 60, 70,000 people who apply every year, something like that. So it's all depending on who you compare yourself to. If you're comparing yourself to good grief, man, if you compare yourself to Jesse Graff, who has been... Who who, I've done many times because she's my trainer. (laughs) Whom you train with, and she has been on the sides of the trucks and on the billboards. The fact is, well, well, if you compare yourself to her, it's, you know, there's a significant gap. But you know what? If she compares herself to the current flock of 16-year-olds, she is scrambling. So mm-hmm. it, it, everything is comparison. Of so, course. And I, I totally agree with that. And context heavily factors into this. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So but if we go back, yourself, my friend. Oh, I've, I've, <laughs> trust me, this is a lifelong lesson that I'm still learning to this day. But if we're looking at this as two very simple Venn diagrams, sure. we have my level of expertise as a Hollywood film and television editor, level of expertise as a ninja warrior. And for the sake of this conversation, the context are all the people that make it on the show. Yes. So if I'm in the Superdome, Compared to the other American Ninja Warriors, I suck. And statistically, I have the numbers to prove it. Of the 100 people on set that day, I was like 97 of 100, right? So if we're looking at those two Venn diagrams, editor, Ninja Warrior, right? Very, Mm -hmm. very different. Intersect those. Tell me one editor that you know that works on my level that's better than than me at American Ninja Warrior. The pretty rarefied where those two things intersect. I I would venture to guess that it's pretty safe. I'm the best in the planet where those two things intersect as far as level of expertise as an editor and storyteller 
an ability to do American Ninja Warrior as a sport, right? Which is why mm -hmm. I had mentioned earlier and planted the seed that the producers on the show that go through those 70 or 80,000 reels, they're like, this is the best casting video we've ever seen because it's the intersection of my ninja skills and my editing skills, right? And I believe the future of uh, having us stand out as humans against artificial intelligence is understanding where to find those intersections. So having talked about the Venn diagrams, I want you to share and kind of go back and start connecting some of the dots about all of the various experiences, whether work experience, life experiences, the skills and abilities you've learned along the way that make you one of the best people to teach storytelling to accountants that have to learn how to be podcasters. Cause this is how we learn to diversify our specializations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, the fact of the matter is I'm a verbal processor and sometimes it takes me a while to just kind of noodle on stuff. So mm -hmm. let's noodle. That. That's why we're here. No, there's no bearing with you. I love this part of the process. So I used to think, that it was about doing the things. I used to yeah, I used to get confused. When I was graduating from high school, I, I had all these different interests and I didn't know which one I was supposed to pick because I thought you're supposed to just pick one thing. And so I was into, uh, I, I was Jeff the piano guy. I was Jeff the music arranger and composer and recording and music production guy. I started doing that in junior high. Got to the point where I was able to, compose and record the soundtracks for my own video projects that I started doing in high school. I was the one man band in high school in a town of a thousand people where no one else cared about that stuff. I was the only guy there who actually cared about this. So I did it all. I thought that I, well, I, I didn't know where I was going to focus. Then I ended up going, going to Bible college for two years. They didn't have anything with film or TV, but they did have radio. So I did some radio. And I said, after two years, I want to get back into video and TV stuff. So let's just move out to LA, figure out how to get into the industry. I did. So I, I, I think looking at the, the overlapping things, I thought that it was about media creation, um, about performance. But really, it's, I don't know if I could really think of a clean Venn diagram off that other than to realize 40 years later that it's all driven by the same thing. I mean, it's constantly, you know, as, as creatives, we're looking for patterns. We're looking for pattern recognition. I mean, that, that's a big part of it. And we're saying, well, this is like that. And this is like that. Oh, well, making people care about what I'm playing on the piano, making people care about take, taking a regular song and arranging it. Uh, and, and arranging it and recording it in a unique way, or you, or you're sitting in an edit bay in Hollywood and you're saying, okay, this could be a regular, a really, you know, a, a basic package talking about this athlete. So, so talked about ninja since that's what we're doing. And but what if you say, okay, well, this you have this ninja and she's training with her father. So what if it's not about the girl and just hanging out? It's what if it's about relationship? What if it's about connecting a daughter and a, and a father, you know, and, and that kind of a thing. So it, it's all, it's all the same thing, elevating communication. And that's what I kind of found as an overarching pattern. It's taking something that is ordinary and elevating it to the extraordinary. Mm. 
I love that because what what you've done, and I want to get more into the the generalization side of things. But the I, whether or not somebody else has said this, I don't know. But I've done searches for it, and I can't find it. And I may end up trademarking it. But we've all heard the term "jack of all trades, master of none." Everybody knows that, and there's actually mm-hmm. more to that afterwards. But what I've been saying is that especially with the advent of technology and artificial intelligence, I think we're entering the age of becoming a jack of all trades and a master of one. And you are a jack of many trades, but you are a master of one, which is that I elevate communication. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're an editor. It doesn't matter if you're doing story greenlight when it didn't work. Now that you're doing story greenlight and it does work, the underlying thing underneath the thing is that you elevate communication. And empower others to do that for themselves. Exactly. Because teaching is another one. It's a huge dot. I've been teaching piano lessons. You know, I started teaching piano lessons back in junior high. And, you know, I started doing group coaching in 2015 with the power edit. So, I mean, that's, that's an ongoing thread too. So it's one thing to be able to do something. But if you can help other people do it for themselves, that's a whole other level of value creation there too. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking to yourself, I need to find a way to create an income stream. Well, I've got to edit. Oh, well, there's no editing right work right now. I guess I can't do anything. But if the mindset is instead, I elevate communication, the possibilities mm-hmm. are endless. And the one that you have right now is I help to elevate the communication of these business leaders or these agencies People that don't understand how to build trust through communication and bring emotion to what they do as accountants or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the generalized ways in which you've expressed your specialty. So what, what I'd love to do now, and this is, again, where we can just kind of, you know, verbally process this and break it down. I don't need any kind of a clear, succinct answer. I'm just kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to take the work that you do right now, not as an editor, but specifically where you're working with these companies to use podcasting as a way to build trust, what mm-hmm. do you think are the core fundamental skills that are necessary to be good at your job now? Just break it into the simplest versions possible to remove all the nuance. What are the core skills? If, I, if somebody said, Jeff, I want to do the same thing. What are the core skills that I should work on? You need to understand people. You need to have a working knowledge of business and not necessarily, not necessarily, um, you, I mean, here's, here's the thing. It's really easy to say, oh, well, I have to know everything about everyone that I serve and everything about their world. But the fact is, if you try to learn someone else's weeds that they've spent decades getting into, uh, you will go crazy. But if you say, these are my weeds, you know, if I can get into, get into the weeds and all the details of, of my core knowledge, of my core specialty, and I can bring those weeds to other people and help them within their own context, that becomes way it, it, that that was a huge load off my mind when i was able to figure that out um so be encouraged if you're in a place where you're thinking well i want to be able to take what i've learned and help other people with that which if if there's something in your mind that says well oh well i have to know everything that they know no no you don't just stay in your own lane and figure out how you can be in your own lane and operate in an 
excellent way that other people find valuable. You don't have to be other people. Just be you with your, with your existing skill sets. So back to your question in terms of what do, what do I need to do well to do this iteration of business coaching, given my creative background, uh, I, I need to be able to look back at my life and connect those dots and say, what are the connections that matter? How can I apply those connections to this scenario? And that's what creatives do. That's what we do all day long. We look for patterns and we apply them to this scenario here. So that's super cool. Uh, a lot of people, you, you know, if we're, if we're talking about engineers or scientists or, or stuff like that, they, you know, they're, they don't necessarily come from that mental space that creatives do innately. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them do. I don't, I'm, I'm, I won't get off into generalization. But, but by and large, I would say that the, you know, the, you're, you're not completely off the beaten path with that assertion. Um, I love everything you said. I want to simplify it by five additional levels. Go for it. To really, to really give you and everybody else a sense of what I'm going after. So the simplest version of your role right now, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you're in a space that I'm still learning more about. But mm -hmm. essentially, you're an agency that works with companies to help them set up a podcast so they can communicate with their audience and build trust. Is that kind of a, a really basic example of what you do? I, I, I would say at the moment, I am working as a coach with thought leaders, either individuals or within the context of a greater company to help them with their public facing presence. A lot of that ends up happening via podcasts or webinars. Okay, so that's the simplest version. Yes. So I'm just going to I'm going to throw some spaghetti against the wall. You tell me what sticks and what doesn't. It seems to me that in order to do that, and let's use podcasting to make this really narrow. Mm -hmm. You have to know how a podcast works because they're going to yes. be like, how do I set up a podcast? What microphone do I get? Do I need a camera? How does it get on Apple? Right. So basics, you got to know how to do a podcast, right? You have to understand something as a coach about how to structure an offer and how to create that offer such that it's providing value for the customer, right? So that, that would be kind of another base layer thing. Like you said, you have to understand people. You have to understand how they can communicate on their podcast so that it can generate trust and it can eventually build customers. Another core fundamental skill would be you probably have to know how to speak extemporaneously, right? Just a lot of kind of the, the basic core assumptions. And what I want to find and what, the, what, what I'm trying to exemplify to you, but more importantly to everybody listening, is that in most of those categories, no offense, you're just a guy. Yeah. Are you the, are you the best in the world at understanding the workflow for creating a profitable podcast? Heck no. Nope. Not even close. You, probably, you know enough to help an accountant set up a podcast, but you're not the world's expert on creating a podcast. Right. As far as how to, to be a B2B agency and a coach to help thought leaders express their message. Are you the biggest name on the planet that helps thought leaders communicate and express their messages? Not yet. Not yet. Right. And I love that answer. But now if we think about your experience as a storyteller and creating emotions and specifically understanding the hero's journey and applying it to so much of your work as a creative, if you look at the other people that you're potentially competing against that are coaches helping these businesses and these thought leaders communicate their messages through podcasts, how many of them have the depth and complexity of the experience that you do as a creative storyteller? 
It's a pretty exclusive club. It's pretty exclusive. That to me is your asymmetric advantage. That's where nobody else can compete with you. And going forwards, there is no more, I'm a specialist and I do this one thing. The more specialized you are, the more screwed you are as artificial intelligence advances, right? But artificial intelligence cannot replace the intersection of all of your different specialties and where you're generalizing them. So for me and for everybody else out there, it's always about where do I have that asymmetric advantage? Because there are so many things that I do on a daily basis as far as a writer or a podcaster or a ninja warrior or whatever it might be where I'm proficient. I'm okay, right? Mm -hmm. One of the areas where I suck still to this day is marketing and lead generation. Suck at those things, right? <laughs> but I, I Not believe- Not my favorite that, either, I admit. Yeah, not only are they not my favorite, I just, I hate them so much that I just have refused to learn how to do them well. And it's one of the reasons that I'm now repositioning and really broadening the brand to help others. Cause I feel like where I have excelled and where the specialty is, is really helping other people understand how they can provide value to others and also how they can make sure they don't sacrifice their sanity in the process. Cause as you know, where all this started was you deserve to be great at what you do, but it cannot completely cost you your soul. So those are kind of the two areas where I work. And there's so many aspects of that where I'm borderline proficient at it. But again, bringing my storytelling abilities and the ability to create emotion and the ability to take the complex and simplify it, that's the specialization that I can apply just about everywhere. And I, I really want to impart on people that there is an area that you are probably the world's expert at something, but you have to find what that intersection is. And it seems to me you're getting pretty close to that now with the area that you're diving into next. I have the closest, I'm the closest I've ever been. And let me tell you, I, I really want to make sure we go here, if you'll permit me. Of course. The, well, one of the things that have, that continues to blow my mind when it comes to saying, what is my life doing? Where am I going? How do I choose where my life goes? Goes back to this same definition of a story is where a character wants something, overcomes obstacles to get it, and experiences transformation as a result. Every element in that state, in, you know, in that little definition, is a lever. If you pull the lever at the very beginning, everything downstream changes. If you change who you are, or if you decide, I'm going to be a different identity, everything about your story changes. So in my case, I started out as being Jeff, the piano guy, you know, all, all these, you know, these different identities in my life Start as Jeff the piano guy, go Jeff the video guy, Jeff the radio guy, Jeff the film student, Jeff the TV editor, Jeff the online business builder, Jeff the uh, <laughs> Jeff the online business builder wandering in the desert trying to figure out who the heck he is and what he's doing. But then when you finally get to the point where you're saying, I'm Jeff, I'm a storyteller, I'm a communication strategist, and I empower business experts and leaders to communicate memorably and powerfully, especially on business podcasts. That changes everything about what I want. Oh, and let's say I'm the world's foremost storytelling and business strategist. I'm the world's foremost business strategist, uh, communication strategist. Or, you know, I'm still spitballing this, but 
Yeah, just, I'm just, nine years in and I'm trying to figure this out. So I, I feel your pain. But you know, just just even trying that on, like like a like a, like a coat, try on an identity and say, I am the best in the world at this at this intersection of this thing that makes me uniquely me, and no one else has this. I am literally world class at this. What does that mean? I want. Well, start thinking about that. What could get in my way from getting that? You have a whole different set of obstacles. And the bigger your future, the bigger the obstacles you're going to be able, you're going to have to take on. But that's okay because you're a bigger person and you can do it. I love it. I think that the the message, and this is basically stealing from your own words, is that you can change your story, right? It's not a matter of this is the story that I was given. I'm the main character in the story and it is what it is. You can always change your story. And... The, the example of where I've used this, where if we look at the, just because we've used it multiple times already and there's such an intersection, I'm going to go back to the Ninja Warrior story one more time, right? Mm-hmm. It would have been really easy for me after the first season that I got to compete on the course to say, well, I tried. I mean, I failed and it was a really cool three years, but, you know, I failed and I'm now going to give up and I'm going to move on, right? But I didn't. The thought in my mind was, well, this is just going to make the story that much better, Right. The failure is going to make the success story that much better next year when I succeed. And then the second year I failed again and it took some time. I assure you, it took time to process that. (laughs) But I thought to myself, as much as I hate to say it, the story just got even better. But it's now getting a lot harder and the obstacles are getting bigger. And then this year. And the stakes are rising. Right. And the stakes are rising, which makes it a more interesting and compelling and even for me, more inspirational story. Right. So you have to keep piling on the adversity. And I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, I'm good with the adversity. I'm ready for the success story. Right. <laughs> but you, you, you don't get that choice. And then this yeah. year, which I've talked very little about, but, you know, all the machinations of the show, I got the opportunity to test if I wanted to every single day for both testing and shooting of seasons 15 and 16 together. Mm-hmm. They sent me the entire calendar. They said, you can come to any testing session you want, because as you know, they compressed the number of athletes this year. So I didn't make the cut, which I totally understand why from a business and a casting perspective. I'm like, I wouldn't have cast me either. Right. But I could have been on any obstacle I wanted testing anytime at Universal Studios for two seasons in a row, hurt myself on day one of testing. And I missed all of it. And again, I was like... The story, this is the end of the story, right? No, this can't be the end of the story. It just made the story better. But I'm I'm kind of good with the adversity now. I'm ready to I'm ready to move to act three. And I'm still stuck in the right between act two and act three. But again, it's because I know I can change the story. That that to me is I'm in the later chapters, not that the story is over, but it's really mm-hmm. hard on a day-to-day basis to say that. And I bet there are moments with the the wandering no bad land of story green light where it's like, well. I tried and I failed. This story's over versus, nope, I can change the story. And you just kept working at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it it is so easy to compare yourself to other people and say, oh, well, they're, they're building business and they, you know, they're, they're doing this and they're, they're making all these, you know, they're making all these advances and, you know, and and we all know what's happening with our stuff, but we don't actually know what's happening with a lot of other folks, even the folks who seem to be super, super successful. But um, I will say though, if you look at the hero's journey, 
there is a reason that the character who is undergoing a transformation has to go through hell. Because if you don't go through hell, the change doesn't matter. And man, if you're in a place, if you're hearing this, and you're going through hell, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, keep going. Because the best heroes go through hell, and that is what makes them grow. That is what makes them become stronger. And you can keep going. You got this. You can do it. Keep going. There's no way that I could have wrapped it up any better than that. That was fantastic. Uh, so we've come to the shameless self-promotion portion of the program. Anybody that's listening to you that wants to learn more about storytelling, wants to learn more about your services, or they just want to connect you H to H, meaning human to human, not B to B. Or I'm going to use boring to boring. I've never actually heard that before, but that's pretty brilliant. Uh, but human to human, somebody wants to learn more about you and your services and the problems you solve. Where do we send them? There is one URL. There's among the many years of learning about marketing, you send people to your own special URL. Uh, and it is especially for listeners here at the Optimize Yourself podcast. Go to storygreenlight.com slash optimize. And the reason you should go there is because you can actually find out, you can get a link to my podcast. You can get a link to a worksheet that helps you collect some of these elements and help you start building your own power story that you can use in any kind of different situations and have it land in a powerfully emotional resonance with your audience. So that's there. And of course, if you want to connect further and work with me and my team, there's a way to do that there too. I love it. Uh, I'm so glad that we did this, even though for both of us, it was at the tail end of the week, which is the dead zone for any creativity or podcasting, but we're like, nah, Eh, it's Jeff, I'll do it. You're like, eh, it's Zach, I'll do it. So I'm, I, I think some good came from us just, you know, sucking it up and pulling up our bootstraps and saying, all right, fine, I'll do a podcast on a Friday. Uh, so can't thank you enough for taking the time to do it, especially on a Friday evening, knowing you've got a family to get to, make sure that you uh, tell them that I say hi, by the way. So certainly will. Dude, so much appreciation for you and for your friendship over the years. Uh, such a Such a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you've subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.